Good morning. It is great to see you. It is great to be together in the house of the Lord. Amen. I am grateful that we have taken the time the last two Sundays to read lengthy passages of Scripture. In these three weeks in the book of Acts, we've been reading full chapters, and next Sunday we'll do the same. In part because we want to take care that we get the sweeping panorama of the movement of God's Spirit. Last week in Acts chapter two, you know, usually the preacher preaches one section of that. And last week we read the entire chapter and many of you commented how thankful you were to hear all of that chapter. And again today we come to Acts chapter eight and we, we had it read for us all 40 verses. And as I have been reading these chapters in preparation for these messages, it has prompted a recollection of my own history, my own faith history of the saints in my family and the saints in my life who've gone before me. Of those who followed Christ before me and who shared that life with me in so many ways. I am fortunate to have been raised in a home of faith. I'm fortunate that I came and come from a long line of faithful people. I'm thankful for others in the churches that I grew up in who lived it before me, who whispered wisdom to me, even as a child, corrective wisdom. I'm thankful for the pastor who invited an usher to sit with me and a friend in the back row of the sanctuary one day. Because two boys were being boys. But to teach respect. I'm thankful for an elderly retired woman in the congregation I was a part of in high school who came to me in my senior year of high school and said, I understand you're going to go to Pasadena College. I understand you are called to be a pastor. And in 1970, she said, I'm going to send you $100 a month this year to help you. I don't know what that equates to today. but she took from her small income and birthed hope. And a young man whose family had said, we don't know how you'll go to college, we have no money. But God's provision, 
is the witness of the Spirit in my life. Not all of us in this sanctuary today come from a lineage of faith. Some of us have come to faith at a different place in life, and you may be the first person in your family to be a person of faith. But you have a lineage of faith. Those whom God has brought alongside of you in your journey of life that awakened in you that desire that sparked in you some kind of sense that God had something for you, and you came to that moment of saying, I will follow. And so you have had people in your life who have modeled for you what it means. And so you have spiritual fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers. And so say thanks be to God for that witness. And on All Saints Sunday, how fitting it is that we are in Acts and we see the sweep of God's movement through the Holy Spirit, touching the lives of people, changing the lives of people, correcting people, and doing what God does so well, making people aware of God's provision and hope and grace and mercy in their lives. And so it is on this day, we come to say thanks be to God for those who've gone before us. And as Pastor Brad says, not just those who are famous, for there are billions of believers who are not famous, who are just simply faithful. And when called by the Spirit of God to do something, they did that, such as give $100 to a wannabe preacher. Or like my grandfather, who was named after me, pastored small churches in places most of us never heard about, but cared for people and the people of God in places that many have forgotten. And yet God sent a man to a place like that. And God provided for that man. And so it is as we come to this passage this morning, all 40 verses of it. The reading of chapter eight introduced us to Philip and Simon and Peter and John and an unnamed man from Africa. It also introduces us to the rapidly expanding geography of the young church. And if we were to look back, chapter seven, and I really encourage you to go back and read chapter seven. In fact, go on back to six. In fact, it's even better if you start with chapter one and read all the way through. <laughs> but chapter seven is a remarkable story of Stephen 
and his witness of the gospel. And those who conspired against him to bring him to trial under false charges of blasphemy. And his sermon, his sermon that recites the history of God and God's people and their engagement with one another and how God called Abraham out to go to a place he'd never seen or been to and how God called the people out of Egypt through a man named Moses and how God did all of these things and how often the people persecuted the messengers of God, killed the messengers of God, and as a stiff-necked people resisted the work of God. And Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin so angers them in their attempts to preserve the religious system of their day and its political acquaintances with the Roman Empire and they get so angry they lose their minds and they drag him out into the street and stone him to death. And Stephen says, oh God, don't hold this against them. The words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so it is that that begins the diaspora of the church and they scatter. And in the very first line of chapter eight, we're told that Saul was present and approving. And so it is that the horror of chapter seven marks the beginning of the church in Jerusalem and serves to disperse the believers, which is illustrated by the ministry of Philip. Philip was one of the seven. If you go back to chapter six, you remember the apostle said, there are so many things going on, we don't have time to do everything, and so, all of you believers get together and elect seven who will care for the daily needs of the people. And F Stephen and Philip were one of those seven. With Stephen's martyrdom, they are now six. And they are scattered and Philip is scattered. And so it is that the story begins to unfold. And if you go on into chapter nine, you will read the rest of Saul's story. Because what he approved in the first line of chapter eight, without recognizing that he became the unwitting tool of God. The very thing that Saul had hoped to stop from growing grew because of Saul and the persecution he led. And so it was that Saul is unwittingly used of God and his presence at Stephen's stoning becomes the fertile soil for what would happen in chapter nine. 
what we want to recognize in the sweep of these opening verses of chapter 8 is that the Holy Spirit of God is at work even among those we may not recognize as at work. That even in the most hardened of persons, the Spirit of God may be at work. Even among those who may work against us, the Spirit of God may be at work. And if you read through Paul's letter late, later, he talks about his lineage. He talks about the burden that he bears because of what he had done. And so it is that the Spirit of God is already at work in the life of a man named Saul, who would become perhaps the most traveled missionary in the early church. When Joan and I were recently in ancient Corinth, our guide said to us, it is recorded that, Saul traveled, or that Paul traveled 13,000 miles. Remarkable. The Spirit of God is at work. The other insight that I would suggest to you from these opening verses is that God can and will use the acts of non-believers to further the kingdom. We sometimes think it's all on us. It's on anyone God touches to assist us. And I will take assistance from a non-believer. For many of them have a heart for what God is doing. And they believe in all of the things of God in a way that maybe is not yet to fruition in their lives. I said this morning, as we gathered before service with the worship team and the tech team and the pastoral team, and I encouraged us to be a teaching church because we tend to assume when we come into the church that everybody's at the same place we are and everybody knows what we know. Well, it's not true. We're all at a different place on the journey. I mean, you heard Pastor Brad before we read the Apostles' Creed. It's okay that if at some point in this you find yourself not agreeing with this, it's okay because we want you to come to that place when the Spirit brings you to that place. We want the Spirit to help resolve those questions in your mind and you arrive at those places of decision under the Spirit's guidance rather than our insistence. I'm more interested in bringing people along the journey of faith as the Holy Spirit guides them than I am insisting that they get a certificate of completion And so it is we find ourselves in this movement of the Spirit of God in Acts chapter eight. In Acts chapter eight, verses four to eight, Philip becomes the first identified missionary and goes to Samaria. Think about the movement of God here. Where does Philip go? He goes to the Samaritans, the most hated, despised group of somewhat related people to the Jews that the Jews can imagine. 
the Samaritans in Samaria where Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. The Samaritans that are the, the ground zero for the parable from Jesus of the Good Samaritan. And there's a thing going on here in the young church. Because Samaritans, because of their close alignment with the Jews ethnically, are not considered Gentiles. And so here's Philip in Samaria. The Spirit of God takes the missionary to the place of people most closely aligned with the Jews by ethnicity and who are most deeply despised. And the Spirit of God begins to break down the walls of deeply held beliefs. And people believe, and they're converted. This act of the Holy Spirit in Philip's life is the quintessential definition of love thy neighbor. There's no magic, there's no spiritual vitality, there's no great thing to give witness to in loving your neighbor who's like, who likes you and is like you. Love thy neighbor, as the scripture calls out to us, is to love those unlike us, most unlike us, who challenge us, who are challenging to us, and who we say, you know, I really don't want to be in that person's presence. Well, maybe God wants you to be in that person's presence. And so it is that Philip is there in this place, and many Samaritans believe and were baptized. And beginning in verse 9, we, we encounter one of the first known challenges of the church because we run into Simon the magician. He was practicing sorcery, and many people were amazed at what he did, and he practiced magic to his own gain. He was part self-promoter, part sorcerer, part marketing genius, genius who became known as the great power, but then Philip comes with the gospel and people begin to believe and be baptized and Simon is amazed by the miracles he sees and Simon believes and is baptized. Go figure that one out. And from time to time, we hear of accounts of great personalities being led to Christ, Kanye West. Now there's a character. Claims to be a Christian, holds revival services, makes anti-Semitic statements. And 1 John chapter 4 says to us, test the spirits, you will know them by their fruit. And that's exactly what happens here with Simon. For the fruit of Simon's life accrues to him, but the fruit of Philip's life accrues to God. 
There's a question before you follow the rabbit trail of a proclamation of someone following Christ, you'll see where the fruit accrues to. It's the point of discernment for us. It's the way that we discern because if you go down and would create a chart, both Philip and Simon draw crowds. Both Philip and Simon do powerful things. But Simon draws people to himself and Philip draws people to Jesus. There's a promoter about Simon and there's a humility about Philip. And so it is that we take care with our discernment. And then in verse 14, we have this interlude in the story of Simon. For Peter and John are sent from Jerusalem because they heard about the conversions of the Samaritans. And so the folks in Jerusalem say, you need to go down there and make sure this is authentic. Little bit of that Samaritan resistance on the part of the Jews. So Peter and John go down there, they go to Samaria, and they find their conversion authentic. And so they don't reconvert them, they don't rebaptize them, but they bring the gift of the Holy Spirit to them and anoint them with the Holy Spirit. And so they authenticate the work of conversion among the Samaritans. But then we return to the story of Simon. And Simon watches Peter and John and Philip and what they're doing. And when Peter and John are baptizing folks with the Holy Spirit, Simon says, hey, I want that. How much do I have to pay? See, what Simon has done is what we today call syncretism. He had taken one set of beliefs and melded it with his own set of beliefs, trying to make something different. And Peter rebukes him and says, this is a gift from God, you can't buy this. Only God gives this. And Simon, so terrified, says, oh, please pray that what you have rebuked me with doesn't happen to me. And as often happens in scripture, the scripture account leaves the question open whether or not Simon was really eventually completely converted. You know, there's that open question at the end of the parable of the prodigal son about the older son. There's an open question here about Simon. And then after this, the Holy Spirit says to Philip, beginning in verse 26, Go down to the road that goes south from Jerusalem toward Gaza. Walk there, and you'll find a man. Here's the Holy Spirit at work, directing. And Philip goes, and on that road, he hears a man reading the scroll of Isaiah, an Ethiopian eunuch who is the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia named Candace. And he is there reading, and Simon says, do you understand what you read? He's reading the prophecy about Jesus. How can I understand if no one will teach me? And so Philip climbs in the chariot, tells him about Jesus, the Christ, and the gospel of Jesus. 
and he's converted. And so here is this man who believes and they're going along and the Ethiopian says, there's water, any reason I can't be baptized? Now this is really important, folks, because the Ethiopian have presented Philip with a problem. Because the practice in Jerusalem was that you could only be baptized if you believed in Christ and you were, you were circumcised first. <coughs> and Philip says, no, come on, let's go. And he breaks all of the convention of baptism at that time and baptizes. You know, sometimes, folks, we create structures that are a hindrance to the work of God. Philip doesn't get stuck in the hindrances of the structures. And in fact, next week, we're gonna talk about the Council of Jerusalem where this is the central issue in the council. Do Gentiles who believe have to be circumcised? There's a whole lot of things that go on there and the Holy Spirit is at work. But here is this man, he is the first Gentile to be baptized this Ethiopian official. And so what has now happened in chapter eight? The Holy Spirit has taken the gospel to Samaria and now the Holy Spirit has come upon an Ethiopian and African and the gospel is gonna go where? Into Africa now. You get the picture? The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is moving. And the official's conversion begins a series of historically significant conversion stories that follow. Saul in chapter nine, who becomes Paul. Cornelius in chapter 10 and on. The gospel is going places where no one in Jerusalem ever thought it would go because God, under the work of his Holy Spirit said, this can't stay here, it's gotta go there. We see in practice what we saw last week, that the work of God in the lives of persons occur so that God may be at work to create a people. And God is creating a new people, and what God is doing is extending, as we said last week, the covenant to Abraham, the covenant through Moses, the covenant to Israel, the covenant to David, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and now the covenant of God is dispersed throughout the world, the nations. And grace and mercy abounds. Chapter eight is the story of the Holy Spirit baptizing persons and creating a people, a diverse people, a people not seen before, a people of God that is from all nations, tribes, and languages, which is the vision of Revelation chapter nine, verse seven. Would you hear this, please? The vision of God for the work of God is not limited by our vision of God for the work of God. 
The vision of God for the work of God is not limited by our vision for the work of God. Because we have these limitations, we have these structures, we have these things that we think are important. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene in a season when there were all the rules. The rules. Some of you all grew up with me in the Church of the Nazarene and had the rules. You took a nap on Sunday, that was a rule. I hated that rule as a 10-year-old kid. Today I love that rule. You didn't read the newspaper on Sunday. I mean, there's just a whole list of stuff, legalistic stuff. The question isn't, what are the rules? The question is, what is God doing and how do I participate? Go there. Going there will make some of us uncomfortable going there go there. I titled this sermon Magic and Miracles, the difference between the magic of Simon and the miracles that Philip was a part of. But there were a lot of miracles being done, but here's what I think the miracle of chapter eight is. The miracle of chapter eight is the Holy Spirit helped these people love their neighbors. And every once in a while I hear a conversation, well, why, why don't miracles still happen today like they used to happen? You know, friends, I will tell you, if you wanna be a miracle, love your neighbor. You wanna participate in a miracle today? Love your neighbor. When we love our neighbor in the way God asks us to love our neighbor, miracles happen. And they happen here first, in the interior place first. In just a moment, we're gonna come and share in the sacrament of communion, and we're gonna serve it to you today. We're gonna do away with the crazy cups and lids and all that stuff. How about that? But think about it. Isn't that what this table means? That Jesus came and loved his neighbors. It cost him his life. And when you come today to receive the bread and the cup, let it be a call to participate in modern day miracle working by loving our neighbors. Different than you, frustrating to you. They've already captured your heart because you think about them, right? If they're gonna own your heart and mind, let's own it for miraculous purpose and let God do a new work. I've asked Pastor Brad to come and to provide for us the institution of the elements as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup.